0: If you got a Bible, um, go to Joshua chapter 7, and um, if someone wants to throw out a page number, that'd be great. Um, we have been in the book of Joshua uh, over the last, I don't know, handful of weeks, and we've been looking specifically at Joshua uh, in the idea of leadership, specifically how God leads his people through other people. That we're the means by which he chooses uh, to lead and to do his work in the world. So we've talked about this for a while. If it's really true, if that's true, uh, then we're all leaders. And however that's displayed, whether that's your role at work, whether that's some kind of role you share here at, at Midtown, uh, in your family, as a parent, or even just in your own moral life, in your personal life, we're all leaders and God calls us to bring leadership uh, in different areas. And so therefore we need to grow in our understanding of what is the basis in the place from which we lead. Last week, if you guys were here, uh, Randy took us uh, into Joshua 6. If you're uh, familiar with scripture, this will probably be a familiar passage, maybe even all the way back to childhood. Uh, the Israelites beginning to take possession of the promised land and the city of Jericho was what stood between the Israelites and taking possession of the promised land. Randy talked about Jesus appearing before Joshua as the commander of the Lord's army there um, on the road to Jericho. And he gave him encouragement, and this is important. We're going to kind of dip in and out of this a little bit today. He uh, gave him not only encouragement, but that the battle is the Lord's. The Lord made it very, very clear to, J- to Joshua what's about to happen is mine. I'm going to provide this victory, Joshua. And he gave him even some very specific instructions about how they were supposed to go about um, this attack. Uh, seven days, priests blowing horns, men marching in silence. Last day, seven times, blow the horn and scream. Walls fall down, uh, city's ours. Interesting battle plan, isn't it? Uh, but really what I want us to remember from last week is this, is that Randy encouraged us that our lives aren't a journey to go gain a victory, that Joshua wasn't going to gain a victory over Jericho, but it's a journey to walk in the victory that has already been given us in Christ. But that's the work that we do. That's the work that that we even come here this morning to do. Is not to come gain some victory in our lives. But we come to walk in the victory that Christ has already supplied for us. So the victory is his. And we seek to be those whose lives are marked by walking in the victory. And the significance of what Christ has done for us. So this week we're going to look at Joshua 7. Turn there and let's read. And... Um, We'll go from there. Joshua chapter 7, verse 1 says this. Uh, but the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Camry, or Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, and the tribe of Judah took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Bum, bum, bum i 'm going to paraphrase uh, some of the rest of the chapter for us right now, but isn 't this kind of the way it works? like this is like in golf when um, you get a birdie, kind of the post birdie blow up like the next hole is almost a guaranteed like double bogey, uh, maybe a complete tank or um, i don 't know I feel like every time a football team scores. Uh, or soccer team scores. I watch soccer more than I watch football. It's like the most um, dangerous time is the few minutes right after you've scored. You see the guy run back uh, for the touchdown. So what's going on here? What's happening uh, in Israel? Israel has just experienced a great victory in the Battle of Jericho. God has stepped in and miraculously done something on Israel's behalf he gives them the city of Jericho and he has given them you're gonna to have to turn back to Joshua chapter 6 for a second some strict guidelines about what they can and they can't do with what happened at Jericho so let's go to Joshua 6 verse 17 I'll read from there it says the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord only Rahab and the prostitute the woman who had helped the Israelite spy on the city talked about that earlier And all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All of the silver and of the gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go in to his treasury." So it's pretty clear God has given clear instructions and guidelines and Achan one guy in all of Israel has broken those guidelines this so wasn't a gray area we love to do this and we're going to talk about this here in a second we love to kind of gray the lines like eh, I'm not really sure he said that I'm not really sure if this is really something he didn't want us to do it was a blatant breaking of a command Don't take any of these devoted things. These are for the Lord. So let's start with this question. Have you ever been here before? Ever been in this spot? You know something isn't right. It's very, very clear. Not a big question mark, not a big gray area. And yet you find yourself doing it. When I was a kid, um, I got into ninja stuff a little bit. Y'all got whatever your ninja stuff is. Everybody's got it. Um uh, for those of you who don't know what a ninja is, it's some kind of martial art warrior that wore a black costume and you could barely see and um he was very secretive and could move around and kill people by getting really close to them and um never used a gun, swords. Anyways, I'm not gonna talk about ninjas anymore, but um I got very into this in kind of my uh golly, probably like, you know, five, six, seven, up till ten. And uh I finally, I would buy, like, little kung fu magazines at the grocery store. I'd, like, plead with my father, please let me get one of these magazines. And um, so I would get them and read them and um, look at different moves that I was never going to learn how to do. And uh, in the back of all these magazines, we had, the Internet wasn't real when I was a child, so this is how you bought things. (laughs) You didn't go on the Internet. You looked into a magazine, and then you, like, wrote out, like, on hard paper a form and sent it in. And so I, I sent away for some throwing stars. My dad uh, allowed. These are like little devices that ninjas throw at people in order to knock them down, and um, and hurt them. Uh, And so I pleaded with my dad for throwing stars, and uh, he would not allow me to get the actual real metal throwing stars that could stick into trees. But he let me buy um, some rubber throwing stars, and I got two of them, and uh, they were four-point stars. And throwing stars, four-point stars. Just remember that's where you were. Just move your mic up to your mouth. Okay adjustments. There we go. go. Better? Four four point throwing stars. Sorry. Did you guys not hear the whole first part? (laughs) Not good. Um, So anyways, uh, my dad made it very, very clear. David, uh, how you called me David? David, these are to be used at our home. These are not to be used around anybody else. Um, If you use these around anybody else, if I see you throwing these at anybody, if anything like this occurs, I literally, I'm going to take these from you and you will never get them back, ever. Okay? Uh, I understood my father uh, and what he said. Uh, He's a pretty straightforward guy and uh, he means what he says. So uh, I kind of, that kind of floated for a while, but I got up the courage to take him to church (laughs) of all places. We had a giant gymnasium attached to our small Mennonite church in Upland, rural Indiana. And um, after the service, you know, people socialized and kids ran around. And um, I uh, brought my throwing stars and I remember the day. Uh, I remember standing in, <laughs> standing in the gymnasium and throwing these at probably Chuck Kirkpatrick or somebody like that. And um, anyways, my dad, I remember him coming over and he grabs me. And he looks at me and he says, what are you doing? And I said, oh, <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> I'm about to get in trouble, I think, that's what I'm about to do. And uh, he said, give me the stars. And he gave them, or he took them from me. Uh, and he said, you understand you'll never see these again. And I said, yeah, I get it. So he took them. Um, literally, not kidding, 30 years old. I asked my father, uh, do you have the throwing stars? pulls them out of his closet, still has them. Can I have them? Nope. (laughs) You, uh, Dave, are, you're still alive, and I said that you would never get them back, and so, um, I don't know, maybe they'll make it into my casket. (laughs) But, uh, it sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? I mean, I struggled with that with my dad. Like, okay, got it. I get the lesson. You told me not to. I did it. I'm sorry. It can take something he's not supposed to. And what ends up happening later in the passage, and we'll get to this, is that um, Joshua and the Israelites have to stone this guy. Have to put him to death. So is, is God overreacting here? Is he kind of like my dad? Or how I view my dad right now when I'm talking about that story. God's just making a point with Aiken like the Chinese stars. Nope, you blew it. Well, I think there's something more at stake here than oversimplifying it and treating it like I just said. And I think God knew it, and I think Aiken actually knew it too. So, point one the first thing I want us to kind of dig into is, is this that sin, any sin, is no small thing. The Chinese star thing, it seems really small and playful and everything, but it was a big deal. My father understood there was more at stake than these Chinese stars. And this passage starts off with a statement that Israel was unfaithful, or the ESV says that Israel broke faith with God. God wasn't just concerned with the silver or with the gold or with the robe that Achan took and that he stole and that he buried. goes on to talk about that he buried this, this, this treasure of his in his tent. He hid it. He wasn't just concerned with those items, he was concerned with the posture of Achan's heart that he would do such a thing. This wasn't just an act of disobedience, but it was an act of faithlessness. It was an act of unbelief. I believe, scripture would even teach us that it was an act of idolatry. So let's look into that for a second. Why did Achan do it? 7 verse 21. He says this, he says, When I saw the plunder and a beautiful robe from Babylonia and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. So Achan understands at this point that what drove his heart to make this decision, to take something that the Lord said, do not touch, this is mine, was covetousness. Uh, Modern form, translation, we kind of get lost when we say the word greed. But he coveted these things. Colossians 3, 5, Paul talks about this. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. We have a really easy time at not seeing sin for what it actually is. Kind of, it's easier just to kind of leave it in the classification of like sexual impurity than to really talk about the fact that it might actually be idolatry. That greed actually is idolatry. Um, This is a book called Greed as Idolatry. Uh, Brian Rossner, a New Testament scholar, uh, Old Testament scholar, says this, um, put simply, in the biblical and Jewish tradition, so this is where we're at, so the history of the Jews in Israel, there is no more serious charge than that of idolatry. (coughs) Idolatry called for the strictest punishment, Idolatry is the ultimate expression of unfaithless, unfaithfulness to God. And therefore, for that reason, the occasion of severe divine punishment in the Old Testament. In Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all these books of the Bible talk about this. This was in the Old Testament law. <coughs> the majority opinion accorded idolatry the punishment of stoning. Stoning the severest punishment of all, and it was ranked first of the three commandments, never to be transgressed by a Jew. So Achan didn't get stoned just because he stole something. The Lord saw this as something much, much serious, more serious than maybe we would read on a uh, just kind of surface level. This was no small thing that Achan had done. He was stoned, Because the Lord knew there was more at stake than some missing gold and silver and clothing. What was at stake, and not just, and we're going to talk about this in a second, what was at stake is not just in the life of Achan, but in the life of Israel, was a matter of worship. It was a matter of rule of life. It was a matter of authority. Of who's calling the shots. (laughs) Remember, victory. Battle is mine, says the Lord. So now we're back to this big question. Tim Keller in his book Counterfeit Gods says this, the Bible uses three basic metaphors to describe how people relate to the idols of their hearts. They love them, they trust them, and they obey them. Idolatry is when you take an incomplete joy of this world and you begin to build your entire life on it. Israel had a track record of this, guys. Go back to Exodus, look at Mount Sinai. Moses bringing down the law, Aaron, everybody, golden calf. This is not the first time this had happened. And I would suggest that we have a good track record of this too. That my heart is like this miniature idol factory. That I constantly take even good things, but incomplete joys of this world, and I start to build my life on these things. What people think of me. Money. Security. All I mean, we could list a hundred things. So a question I want to ask you, because Achan did this when this idolatry was present, and this is, what, in your mind, small sins are you keeping hidden and alive in your life? Is it possible that that sin is much more dangerous than it appears to be? That you're maybe not seeing it for what it really is? You're kind of keeping it in some classification and not acknowledging it as the idolatry that it possibly is. Are you conveniently keeping it so small as to not have to deal with it for what it truly is? We do this. I do this. I perpetually downplay things. I make them seem less than they truly are. Here's how I do this. I put sin on a scale. (laughs) Oh, oh, he... You know, he he got caught sleeping around with someone else's wife, but me, my incessant gossip and slander of people, that kind of goes mildly unaccounted for. It's pretty easy to do, isn't it? The things we conveniently classify as smaller sins only reflect the deeper issues of our heart. And if these issues are not identified for what they truly are, they will, hear me say this, they will end up wreaking havoc in our lives and in the lives of those that we're in community with. If we have a small view of sin, and we talk about this all the time at Midtown, the immeasurable grace of God in our lives, we cannot have a huge view of God's grace if we don't have a large view of our sin and need for it. They're proportionate. So I would suggest to you, if you have a small view of your sin, then you probably have a very, very small view of God's mercy, of his grace, of his love for us. So sin's no small thing. We need to look at it for what it really is. The second thing is this, is our sin never just affects us. It affects everyone around us as well. What I didn't read is is that right after Achan had done this, Joshua sent some troops up to a place called Ai, which is a much smaller town than Jericho. Sent some spies up, they said, hey, it's not a big deal. We don't even need to send the whole army, just send 3,000 guys. They go up there and they get routed, lose 36 men. 36 guys die. They come back, they meet with Joshua. Joshua and the elders tear their clothes on the ground, dust on their heads. Lord, Lord, why have you done this? Why have you allowed this to happen? Why have you brought us out into the desert only to give us into the hands of the Amorites? Why, why, why is this happening? Randy um, has said this to me for as long as I can remember, <laughs> and I know he said it on this stage. If you don't deal with your sin, you make everyone else deal with it. One of the most striking things about this passage to me was is that Achan sinned, but the Lord never talked about Achan. All he talked about was Israel. He said the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And not unlike the Chinese stars, doesn't this seem a little unfair? Like we love this in our culture to kind of like, Randy talked about this last week, the kind of when our team wins, the we won conversation, but when they lose, the they lost conversation. We love to be a part of the victories, but we never want to associate ourselves with the defeats. Achan did it, so why does Israel have to suffer because of him? I just would suggest this and we can't dig into a ton of this but we can infer from the text just by the fact that the Lord never addresses Achan he addresses Israel that in the Lord's eyes Achan's sin was seen as something that wasn't just about him. It was something that was going to affect all of Israel. Some of us don't have to look outside of our own stories to see this principle at work. Maybe you had an abusive parent and you're dealing still as an adult with the abuse, the effects of that sin. Maybe shame and manipulation were acceptable forms of communication in your family. And now shame and manipulation are the cards you play in all of your relationships. Maybe you married someone who demands control over every aspect of their life. And so, therefore, control over you. <laughs> Maybe you're dating someone who loves themselves more than anyone else. That's a hard place to be. You see, we love to think that we can, just like Achan, we can hide it. I kind of have these little idols. I can hide my sin. And then, in the privacy of our own hearts, which are our tents, <laughs> in our minds, we either indulge in that sin or even if we're feeling convicted of it, we can deal with it, but we're going to deal with it in private. But the hiding can only last so long before it eventually bleeds into everything else. When I was young as well, my brother and I, who's much older than I, stole a box of matches from my parents. Um, cabinet matches were obviously something we weren't supposed to hang out with. And... um We were walking back from lunch after church, ironically. Um, Something about church and disobedience that runs through my life. And um, my brother showed me the box of matches. I remember seeing them and thinking, ooh, this is kind of fun. And um, he uh, and I decided that we were going to, at the end of our lane, we have a long like quarter-mile lane and then a big five-acre forest that my parents' house is kind of situated in we decided we were going to kind of light a little patch of grass on fire and see what that was like. Good idea. <laughs> so uh, we light this little patch of grass, and this little patch of grass starts to become a bigger patch of grass. And, um, you know, we're kind of doing the, the stomp dance a little bit, like, okay, let's try to keep it hemmed in. And then all of a sudden, um, there was no hemming it in. Uh, it got big. And I remember standing there with my brother being like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And like the whole freaking lane's on fire. And, but he's just like on his knees, like screaming in the, in the, the gravel. And literally our entire lane, I'm talking like a quarter acre of grass and land, is just like. <laughs> I remember my buddy Craig Moore's dad is driving by and he's got the, one of those old station wagons with the seat that faces backwards. And uh, sorry, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but. I just remember it vividly. Uh, Drives by our lane, and then all of a sudden I see him back up, and he rolls down his window, and he's like, of course, this is kind of here's your sign. Like, are you guys okay? No, look, our whole freaking lane's on fire. Like, of course we're not okay. (laughs) So he calls the fire department. The fire department comes out. We literally almost catch the whole woods on fire, which would have burnt our parents' house down. Just a little fire, right? Just boys playing with matches, right? No big deal. We almost burned it down. And I think it's kind of like this. We just think our sin's kind of like this little fire that we can kind of just keep enough water around, keep enough rocks around. We can kind of keep it contained, warm ourselves by it when it's convenient. Um, But what happens when the whole field catches on fire? We live in such an individualistic society that we often forget or lose our sense of interconnectedness with others. (coughs) God saw more than just aching. When we read this text, it's just real easy to just see Achan. Oh, poor Achan, and oh, God overreacted. But this was Israel's story. God's story of redemption of his people. <coughs> so he saw more than just Achan. He saw his people. And he had a plan for more than just the individuals. Hear me say this. The individuals who made up the nation of Israel. He had a plan for his people as a whole this is hard for us in this self-focused narcissist individual we value the individual so much in our culture to get our heads around so to ask this question it's kind of a partner question to where am I keeping my sin small and not really facing it where is the sin in my life bleeding into the other areas of my life where do I see my sin having an impact on the life of another? You may even have to ask this question. Do I even see that that's a possibility? Or do I have an entirely individualistic understanding of my sin? Okay. I know I'm asking you to go with me here. And I know this isn't easy stuff. I kind of felt like I got the short straw in this sermon a little bit. No. Um... Sin is no small thing. It's idolatry. It has an impact and repercussions on more than just myself. It affects my entire life and my relationships, my community. So we're left with this question. What do I do? <laughs> how do I bring, if I, if I agree with those two things that you just said, how do I bring leadership to this issue? Well, the first thing is this, and Randy's mentioned this a couple of different times, but we find Joshua doing it. Again, and I find myself doing it. Fear asks the wrong questions. When we're afraid, we tend to ask the wrong questions. So we have to start with the right question. Go in uh, Joshua 7 there and look at verse 6. After the men of Ai had been, or, or the Israelites had been rounded, Ai. It says, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there until evening. <clears throat> the elders of Israel did the same Sprinkled dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people, listen to this, across the Jordan and deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? I mean, y'all, they're just coming off of Jericho. They lost 36 guys. And Joshua is saying, Why did you ever bring us across the Jordan? to hand us into the Amorites' hands to destroy us. If we had only been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by his enemies? You see the posture here? Why did you? You ever notice how we always tend to look outside of ourselves first? Place the blame for what's going on. They are the reason that this is happening in my life. I see this in myself. Something is wrong. Someone outside of me is to blame. It's not my fault. Lord, why are you letting this happen? It's my wife's fault. It's my kid's fault. It's my job's fault. Whatever else, the blame fingers go like this. Look at God's response to Joshua in verse 10. Stand up. Joshua is like throwing himself on the ground. Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned and they have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, and they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. And he tells them to go consecrate themselves. In verse 13, go deal with this. It's as if God says to Joshua, Hey, Joshua, it's not about that. I'm still with you, you're still my people. I still love you. But there's sin in the camp and it needs to be dealt with, or it's going to have a greater impact. You ever make something about something else so you don't have to deal with it? It's really easy to do. (laughs) I find it easy to shift the focus of what's really going on, my own sin, oftentimes in order to have to avoid facing the issue for what it truly is. And I would just principally invite you to consider this, that what God is doing with Joshua here, he's saying Look in your own camp, Joshua. Turn inward. Take an assessment of what's really going on. Stop accusing me of, ba- or of bailing on you. That's not what's happening here. Psalm 139, David says it like this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting we need to let the Lord direct us like He directed Joshua. Start with our own camp. Let Him guide us to see if there's any offensive way in us. And I'm encouraging you in this and that is that you can't do this by yourself. You need the Holy Spirit to reveal this stuff to you. John 16:7 says it like this, this is Jesus. <clears throat> But I tell you the truth, it is good for you that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. (coughs) I would even go this far, that God had to let the Israelites get defeated at Ai in order to wake them up to the fact that something was wrong. (laughs) That Achan maybe would have stayed in hiding unless something would have brought it to the surface. Achan's sin was hidden. The Lord had to intervene in order to draw it out. You and I do not have the power to understand our own hearts. We need the Holy Spirit oftentimes to draw out the depth of what's really going on. The second thing is this, is is that we let the Lord deal with it how he sees fit what it is that he reveals to us. And this is a hard one. I mean, you want to talk about a big gulp, which I'm about to take one of water. We receive the Lord's perspective and perception of our sin, not our own. We let him bring leadership into our lives in that area. You and I, by God's grace and his power, and oftentimes, and we'll talk about this in a sec, with the help of other people, We do what happened. We put it to death. I know this stings, but please hear what I'm saying this morning. The seriousness of this. We put it to death before it puts us to death. This is literally happening in Joshua. In our lives here today, this may be more of a metaphorical understanding, but maybe not. I mean, maybe it's possible. I mean, I'm sure there are some people in this room who have an addiction that maybe is literally destroying your relationships and even can potentially claim your life. So we stop minimizing our sin and hiding our sin and we bring it into the light and deal with it. Colossians 3.1 says this, since you have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also put with, or appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, because all of those things that we just read are true. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, <coughs> impurity, lust, lust evil desires and greed which is idolatry Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount (coughs) Matthew 5 if your right eye causes you to sin gouge it out and throw it away it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell and if your right hand causes you to sin (coughs) cut it off and throw it away it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is saying that this sin, it will lead to something. It's going to lead to something much larger and more difficult than you can ever imagine, so deal with it. Maybe you know somebody who's had to have aggressive <coughs> treatment on a disease. I had a boil on my rear end one time. I know that's disgusting, but um and I'm not going to get into the depth of this, but uh, cuz it's a I'm revealing things to you right now. But uh the doctor said we we, we got to cut, like we got to get in there and deal with this because this could become a much bigger issue uh than it already is. And it was painful. Uh but he had sorry. Mitch is losing it up here. He had to put my boil to death. He had to deal with it before it became more uh, than it was. We have to have an aggressive approach. And why is this so hard? I mean, even what I'm saying right now, I'm, I'm not obtuse to the fact that this is hard to hear. It's hard for me to say. This was hard for me to prepare because it was so convicting in my own life. It's hard because often my sin is the place where I find my life. If I'm really honest, it's the place where I find life. I'm keeping that fire going because it gives me something. To put it to death would mean to lose something that functionally I'm not sure I could do without. If I lost that, I'm really not sure how I'd be. So how do we do this? And I realize this is risking um, some oversimplification but hopefully these are some, some handholds about how do we start to deal with some of the things I'm talking about this morning. And the first is this. <coughs> Remain in me. John fifteen five. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. <coughs> Apart from me, You can do nothing. This takes us back to what Randy talked about last week. We continue to walk in the victory. Man, that is already ours in Christ. Galatians 5.24 says it like this. Thank you. You actually just cut my cough out, didn't you? I've been sick all week. Galatians 5:24 says, "Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires, and since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So we have to remain. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Apart from Him, we cannot deal with this. The second thing is, is that we receive the Lord's discipline as a sign of His love for us and not His wrath. This is hard. Because <laughs> we, we live in a culture that says if it's painful, it can't be God's will for me. If it's difficult and something's wrong, either something's wrong, usually, remember, outward fingers? When the Lord begins to put to death sin in our life, it feels like He's killing us entirely. <laughs> but that's not the case. Even though that it is very, very painful. So those of us who are fiercely loyal to our emotions, we find this really difficult to let the Lord come in and do this. But Hebrews 12, verse 4, um, gives us a little perspective on now that we're in Christ, those of us who are in Christ, how this is not about judgment, but it's about discipline. He says this, Hebrews twelve four, and I encourage you to go read this. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So our posture changes. It's not judgment anymore, it's discipline. And the only one that disciplines is those that he loves, those that he considers sons and daughters, those that he's made sons and daughters. So we remain in him. We begin to receive this as discipline and not as judgment. And then the third thing is this, is you ask others for help. James 5.16 says this, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. You stop hiding. You not only call your sin for what it is, but you call it with someone else in the room. You let someone else maybe call it for what it is. Satan loves to isolate us, to cause us to feel alone and therefore be alone. But I'd like you to consider this, that if our sin affects not just us, then we need more than ourselves to deal with it. I'm in a small group of people. It's been meeting for a couple of years. And it's a group of people who are risking this. Because it's a risk. There is cost involved in this. It's a group of people who are starting to meet in a room and stop lying about the fact that we're a lot more messed up than we would ever want to admit. And we're doing it in front of each other. It's been an incredibly um, healing experience. I think for all of us. We're beginning to experience, I think, what James is talking about when we confess our sins to one another, when we bring things out of hiding, when we begin to journey in putting things to death. We need one another to do that. So, sin isn't small. If you have a very small view of God's grace and His holiness, His goodness, and His mercy, then you're going to have a very, very small view of your own sin. Second, our sin affects more than just us, everyone has to deal with it when we refuse to. We need to start asking the right questions. We need to look inward first and then we need to deal with it not alone but with the Lord as the leader of the charge and with others involved by his grace and power we bring out of hiding our sin and we go on the journey of beginning to put it to death I want to end with something, Um, go to Hosea 2 because I know this could kind of feel like a downer (laughs) but I really want you to see this. The place where <coughs> um, they stoned Achan in Joshua 7 is this. Uh, it says, Then all Israel stoned him." This is at the end of Joshua 7. And after they had sto- the stones had rest, they, they burned them. And over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. And the Lord turned from his fierce anger. And therefore the place has been called the Valley of Achor, Ever since. The valley of Akkor. We see this in another place in Scripture. It's later in a prophetic passage in Hosea 2, and that's why I want you to go there real fast, and we'll close with this. Hosea chapter 2. And I would honestly encourage you guys to spend some time in this passage. But Hosea chapter 2, verse 13. Boy, it would be great to read all this. We don't have time. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. And she decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, declares the Lord. He's calling it for what it is. It's idolatry. And listen to what he says here. In Midtown Cali, hear this. Therefore, I am going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert. And speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. And I will make the valley of a core a door of hope. <coughs> there she will sing as in the days of her youth. As in the days of Egypt. She came out. Or as in the days she came out of Egypt. And that day declares the Lord. You will call me husband. You will no longer call me master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. (coughs) Go down to verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. (coughs) And you will acknowledge the Lord. Go to verse 23. I will plant her, he's talking about Israel here, for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Some of you may be here this morning. You may be in the valley. You may be hiding or afraid. Or maybe your sin has been exposed and you feel like facing it would be death. Face it. Go to the valley. It's a door of hope. He is exposing our sin not to kill us, but to save us. He is putting it to death not because of his wrath and his judgment on us, but because of his great love for us. His commitment to us, his covenant with us. Like it talks about in Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work we'll bring it to completion. Let's pray. Lord, I know that I struggle to believe a lot of what I just said a lot of days. (coughs) And Lord, that that valley of Ekor, which means trouble, the valley of trouble, oftentimes doesn't feel like a door of hope. But Lord, your word tells us that it is. Lord, your word tells us that therefore there is no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set us free from the law of sin and death. So, Lord, guide us. Guide us into the depths of our hearts, into the interior of our heart tents, our mind tents expose to us the sin that is there Lord give us the courage to deal with it to put it to death invite into that process because we need them and we need you Lord we're powerless to do it by ourselves and Lord protect our minds from the condemnation (coughs) that Satan would love to say uh, to us when we find it that this is the thing that separates you from God Lord it's just not true Show us how it's a door of hope, Jesus, in your name, amen.